0: Paul Smith, keep pace with the investment management industry by attending CFA Institute's 69th Annual Conference. Hi, I'm Jason Voss, Content Director for CFA Institute. Welcome to another of our Take 15 interviews. Our guest today is Karen Kimbrough. She is the Head and Managing Director of Macro and Economic Policy at Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Karen, welcome.
1: Thank you. Good morning.
0: S- yeah, yeah, nice, to be- nice of you to be here. We've got uh, Boston Harbor behind us. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's gorgeous. So my first question I've got for you, um, and let me provide a little context. Um, the question is, to what degree do you think Central Bank easing policies have benefited the global economy and also productivity growth. And here, here I'm after kind of, uh, most people when they talk about QE, they talk about what it prevented as opposed to what it benefited. I would love to hear some, some sure. color on that.
1: Sure. No, it's a great question. And, and there's actually been a lot of uh, work done recently to try to suss out, maybe in more quantitative terms, the extent to which QE's had positive effects on anything from you know, supporting inflation, which is hard to make a case right now, to um, productivity growth. Um, and aggregate demand, and I think, you know, the first thing to think about is really that it was such an unorthodox policy of slashing rates to near zero and then buying this unprecedented amount of securities that central banks really, I think, were kind of wandering into this uncharted territory when they launched this, and I'm not sure they knew uh, exactly what they were going to achieve when they tried it, but it was more of a some, uh, sort of a Hail Mary, like, let's hope that this, you know, will help stop the the seizing up of financial markets, and so, I would almost argue that QE had multiple stages. There were many rounds of it, and early rounds really were around stopping some of the seizing up of financial markets, sort of getting liquidity into the system um, and stabilizing um, financial markets a little bit. But subsequent uh, rounds of QE were a little different. They really did have more of an effect on the long end of rates and probably had more support for um, aggregate demand. Maybe if if I could, I would just say one of the really interesting things about subsequent rounds of QE is that they were bolstered with this sense of forward guidance, the central bank actually saying to investors and consumers, we're going to hold rates low for some foreseeable time. Um, And that really changed the scope of the impact of QE on um, growth. So when you ask this question, like what impacts did it have that were positive, I think the forward guidance was actually really positive because it was married with the QE and in a sense really gave investors a sense that they could go off and kind of benefit from the QE trade, as, if you will, of right. you know, lower exchange rates and higher equity markets and more compressed credit spreads, to really see um, the benefits of easier financial conditions. So long answer to say is probably had benefits that sometimes are estimated as you know, as little as maybe a 1% difference in growth to 3 or 4%. Right. Nobody really knows because of the counterfactual, um, but clearly it did, it did uh, you know, more than probably we even hoped it could um, at the outset. But you also mentioned productivity. Yeah. Um, productivity is is uh, still a puzzle and a discussion point, and is clearly low relative to historical standards, at least recent historical standards. So at this stage, it's hard to make a case that productivity is going to be supported by monetary policy. I might argue that this is where we are discovering the limits of monetary policy. Right, and if you think about what productivity really is, it's um, sort of investments and getting technological innovations. It's... Um, having labor market growth, these kinds of things are probably perhaps better supported by fiscal policy. So it may be the case that productivity is one of those gains that we'll only see um, later on in the recovery and maybe with more fiscal policy support.
0: Interesting. Thank you very much for that. Um, So uh, let me ask you a question. This is not a technical macroeconomic term. What's responsible for the funk in the global uh, economy? (laughs) And by funk, I mean, would you blame like demographic shifts? Would you blame aggregate demand, a combination of factors, something else? What what do you think is going on?
1: Yeah, right. It's a great question because there is a funk, right? A lot of investors are still wondering, is this a recession or a recovery? Which is it? Certainly doesn't feel like a typical recovery that we know from times past. you know, the funk is probably somewhat due to just a really depressed aggregate demand that's, that's worldwide. And the way I think about it is we had a global recession. The recession started here in the U.S., uh, but we passed it around the globe like a bad head cold to <laughs> Europe, and it manifested a little differently in Europe than it did here, but it, it did manifest there in 2011 and so forth. And then it also is manifesting in Asia. Um, so there is a sort of a funk, a sort of depression, if you will, in terms of the consumer wanting to go out and shop. And we're still feeling that effects, I think. Um, there's also an argument, um, a little bit separate, that some of the funk is just uh, a really around risk-taking, a sort of a pullback and risk appetite and risk-taking um, as a result of the really extreme volatility and extreme loss um, that we've seen here, but elsewhere other investors and other uh, markets have seen and so that's going to take time. And sometimes those are almost generational markers, um, if you think about how uh, investors behaved after the Great Depression right. um, or how people behaved after the war. Um, Risk taking can change profoundly on um, sharp impacts like this and maybe not change until the next generation takes over. Super, so, super interesting. Yeah. yeah. So it may be a case that some of this is sort of entrenched in one generation. It may be a case that this lack of what I'll call sufficient demand to meet supply. Um, will take some time to work its way out. But I do look at it as sort of a more of a cyclical issue as opposed to a structural decline.
0: Wow, interesting. OK, so uh, third question. Um, and. I, I'm a big fan of scenario planning as opposed to forecasting. So this may be a somewhat strange question for the audience because yeah. in finance we tend to think of forecasts as well. So what scenarios, major scenarios, are there out there for base interest rates, risk-free rates, say over the next five, seven years, like what are they?
1: Yeah, no, um, great question. I'm actually a fan of scenario planning too. I think it's a little bit easier to kind of create a story where you can identify all the different factors that might, you know, result in an outcome. And in this case, in terms of, What I'll start off is our base case would be, obviously, that it's sort of a low for longer scenario. But what are the alternative scenarios? Maybe um, on one hand, you could argue that we have some sort of global external shock that kind of causes us to re-enter our funk, if you will, um, and double down on this sort of very tepid inflation, very weak aggregate demand, um, and possibly causes even inflation expectations to start to decline more precipitously. So that would be uh, pretty problematic. I think you would expect to see central banks sort of redouble their efforts um, in whatever way they can, if it's either easing through normal channels by lowering rates or if it's um, engaging in a sort of QE. That is in no way my base case. Yeah. But if you were thinking of a scenario, that would be one scenario where you really could see rates almost um, you know, flatlining for quite some time going right. forward. Um, an alternative scenario, which I think isn't really priced in, um, at all, and, and maybe less talked about, is the scenario where actually uh, inflation expectations remain anchored or possibly even start to rise a bit. And at the same time, you have maybe um, the cumulative effects of QE and the advanced economy starts to take root. You start to see real growth come back. You start to see inflation creep back. Maybe the kind of commodity supercycle decline that we've been experiencing starts to come off and commodity prices stabilize. And in that environment, you actually could see inflation rise. Now that's a scenario where um, the long of rates actually pop higher. Um, and central banks would probably be happy to think that that could even be a possibility right now. Right, sure. But that would be a scenario in which maybe we even have rate rises that are a little bit more rapid than we would expect you know, over the next five years or so. Um, that said, that is also not a base case of mine, but entirely a possibility that I don't think is fully priced in.
0: Oh, great answer. Yeah, thanks. So, final question, completely switching gears from the current environment. Um, are there any like developments in macroeconomic theory that you think investors should be aware of? I mean, this is a hard thing to keep on top of <laughs> as an investor when day after day you're just reading the news. It's hard to digest those big white papers, those big academic papers.
1: Sure. Well, I, I'm gonna. The first one that comes to mind is probably one that you and 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 viewers will know, which is really about um, the whole debate about why are we in this funk, or you know, the sort of secular stagnation argument relative to maybe a debt overhang argument. And the argument here would be how do we explain low growth and low inflation that's persisted? And some explanations for that would be, well, we've got this aging demographics, our population is is aging, and so they're less productive, um, they're demanding less, and that's just dragging everything down, growth rates and inflation rates. Um, The counter to that um, secular stagnation story that I just described would be really a sort of a cyclical story, saying, well, we had a sort of a surfeit of credit, and we sort of gorged ourselves on credit in the past, and now we have a debt overhang, almost like a hangover we right, 're sure, yeah. working our way through that, kind of trying to delever at the household level um, at businesses and level, and maybe even um, at a federal national level, um, so with all this debt weighing on us, it is weighing on aggregate demand and productivity. Um, I'm a little bit personally more sympathetic to that argument, but right. there are great economists on both sides of that debate currently hashing that out. And it's actually been a debate that's been around since the Depression of right, the 1920s. Yes. So so I think that's one that's very interesting to watch because it's sort of speaking directly to the current questions that um, economists are struggling with around productivity and low growth. And How long can all this persist?
0: Karen, thanks very much for being here. Much appreciated. Um, If you would like this uh, interview to see it, go to www.cfainstitute.org. And you can also check out our other Take 15 videos. Thanks very much for being here. Copyright 2015 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.